This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Twitter had more follows, not really more follows, more daily follows at least, but Twitter results out, the market likes them, the stock is up. Uh, we like Selena Wang, she covers the company for us, and she joins me right here in our AM960 studios out over the San Francisco Bay. You realize that right now, we are over water at this moment. We are on the second floor of a building, but... Yes, we are. We are definitely. Can, we're looking, looking out on the water. Um, so uh, what is it that the market likes about these results? So there definitely are solid, good financial results coming from Twitter. But investors really may be overly enthusiastic about what I see as mild signs of progress. The company posted the first revenue growth in several quarters, but really only inched up about 2% from a year earlier. It also reached gap profitability for the first time, which is positive, but it's largely due to slashing costs over the past several years. And the company's monthly active users actually stayed stagnant, even though daily active user rate of growth continued to grow. Well, let's, so let's, the, let's, let's, let's break that down, because I think that's really interesting. Um, I, I mean, everything is interesting, but particularly that. So when you look at the number of users on Twitter, it remained the same at 330 million, did not increase. The international usage went up by a million. The U.S. usage went down by a million. So in its most developed and most profitable market, they had fewer users than did the previous quarter. That ain't good. There are several alarming trends there, for sure, and I don't think investors really picked up on it. As you said, monthly active users were stagnant and actually went down in their most key advertising market in the U.S. We saw the growth very highly concentrated in Asia, interestingly, with Japan seeing double-digit growth. Now, the daily active user growth rate was good. It was double-digit. However, so again, Twitter that's, that's not that's not so. Just because I get easily confused, you don't. You went to a fancy Harvard and everything, but um, the. The, so monthly active users, stay the, the, which is the universe of people using Twitter, stayed the same. But the number of people who use it every day actually increased a lot, 12% year over year. Exactly. And that's what Twitter is touting as being very important. This daily active user number means that people are spending more time on the app and they're coming back to it more often every day. So they're really trying to juice more growth and time out of their existing user base, which is great. But the problem is that we haven't seen them make many changes that are addressing the total market. It really seems like they've hit a ceiling in terms of the number of people that are really interested in being a part of this platform, especially in the US, which is a strong advertising market. 330 million people though, is not a bad market size. You know, when you're talking about social media, people still call Twitter niche, mm. especially when compared to Facebook and Google, which several times outnumber that 330 million monthly active user. And the concern is that there was one point when Twitter thought that it could be as big as a Facebook and Google, but now it seems like all of the growth in the digital advertising market, the vast majority of that growth will be captured by its larger competitors. What I always wonder too, Selena, is I feel like Twitter has become certainly entrenched within our social psyche, certainly for people in our world, in the media world, uh, in the news world. I mean, we even, Bloomberg LP, the, the parent House. company of Bloomberg Radio, produces yeah. a global breaking news network for Twitter, right? So the news media we know are, are, are well entrenched. What do we know about the demographics of people who are on it? Is that expanding in any way? Absolutely. I mean, Twitter couldn't be more important in terms of global awareness right now. 
it still has a relatively niche user base. They don't break out the demographics exactly, but we do know that it's primarily people in media, journalists, people in advertising, celebrities, and it's really these influencers that are driving a lot of people to the platform. And shortly after the presidential elections, Twitter did say on their earnings that they also saw a sort of Trump bump. So the fact that the president of the United States uses this platform incredibly frequently is certainly helping not only their brand, but drive people to the app. I, I wonder what it's like. You, you know people over there, and I don't know many, but they had $102 million, $103 million in 13 weeks in stock compensation expense. That's a lot of money for a company that's nowhere. Like when, when a company does an IPO, um, the accounting rules are such that the cheap stock they gave out before the IPO, assuming the, the IPO price is higher than the stock they gave out, they have to recognize some costs there. But that usually goes away after four to six quarters. It's going up, but well, it's not going up at Twitter. It's a, a year ago, in the same quarter, it was 138 million dollars. But that's in 13 weeks. That's that's nearly 10. You know, it's it's, it's nearly nine million dollars a week in in stock compensation costs. There's a few things to say about that. Twitter is. Are they having trouble keeping people? Certainly. I mean, they've had a ton of executive turnover. 2016 was a really difficult year for them. They've rotated through several product heads. They just lost Anthony Noto. But they are starting to get better at retaining that management. But it's definitely still a problem. When I talk to people in the Valley, when they talk about the company that they want to work for, it's usually not Twitter. It is hard for Twitter to attract people, talented people, when they're up against the Googles and the Facebooks that have huge budgets and huge divisions in R&D and artificial intelligence, etc., whereas Twitter has really been paring back a lot of those ambitions to focus on the core product of which is really making money. That being said, they have dramatically paired its costs and expense base and have done several rounds of layoffs over the past few years. But, Selena, expenses are going to be going up, right? They're going to be investing in their product and their sales force, and they've kind of sent out a cautionary note in regards to that. Is this How are we supposed to you know, kind of read this as investors? Is this a good thing? This is going to provide longer-term results? Ned Siegel did say 2018 is the year of investment. Ned Siegel's a new CFO? Yes, yeah. Ned Siegel is a new CFO, also was a Goldman Sachs person before. Certainly, I don't think we should expect margins to expand much more over the coming quarters because the reason why we saw such great margin expansion and profitability this quarter is because they had cut so many costs. They cannot continue to cut costs at that rate. They also want to continue investing. So we are probably going to see some compression there. And we shouldn't expect to see this type of growth every single quarter. This is definitely not a sign of long-term turnaround trends, but certainly in the short term, it's a promising sign. Uh, it's a fascinating quarter from a fascinating company, one that's important to us yeah. just because of what's its, its importance in the world of media. Um, thank you, Selena. Selena Wang, uh, Bloomberg News Reporter, covers uh, Twitter, as you heard so well for us. So like this song is never Yes, indeed. I expected him to play it. Thank you, Paul Brennan. Uh, we've heard several guests actually come on and, and liken the market environment to 1999. Our next guest says there are similarities and differences to the market environment back in 1999. Let's find out uh, what it all means. Adam Strauss is with us, co-CEO and portfolio manager at Appleseed Capital, based in Chicago, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. You were escaping the snow, right? Aren't they expecting like 10 inches or something? Hey, there's going to be a huge <laughs> storm this week. I'm, I'm glad to be gone. All right. Well, it's good to have you here. Tell us um, 1999, right? We hear this often. Tell us what's similar, what's different. Sure. Well, let me let me start with the the similarities. So, um, in 1999, uh, stocks were at a valuation level that was unprecedentedly high. 
Um, today, uh, the only period where stock market valuations are higher w w was back in 1999. So in both situations, you've got a very expensive stock market. That's number one. Number two, uh, we're, you, the economic expansion is long in the tooth. Uh, in 1999, you were eight years in. This year, we're about nine years in. Um, so another similarity. Um, also, in 1999, you had oil prices up significantly off the low and gradually increasing interest rates. Same thing here. You have, you've got oil prices dramatically up, uh, up the low and also gradually increasing interest rates. Um, another remarkable similarity is uh, the euphoria around technology. Back then, it was the internet and dot-com stocks. Today, it's cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Um, and, and, and finally, the big similarity is that anybody who, um, there, there's a dramatic penalty for risk aversion. Mm -hmm. The returns that you can get by taking on the most risky assets uh, available, uh, and the difference between that return and avoiding risk has just been very dramatic both recently or until a week ago um, and also back in 1990. FOMO. Well, we've been calling it all FOMO, right? right. Fear of missing out, Corey. But to, but to the – I mean, all right, let's just take, let's take the, some of that apart. But I want to get to the get to the differences. And too. I want to get that too, I promise. Uh, <laughs> okay. uh, so let's start with, you know, I don't think you can – I was here in 1999 in San Francisco. Um, there were a lot of ice sculptures. There were a lot of launch parties. But there were a lot of IPOs. There were a lot of big startups, uh, multi-billion dollar startups all around dot-com technologies. Some of them went away, well, most of them went away, but there were well over 100 stocks uh, enlisted. That, Bitcoin is nowhere near, blockchain is nowhere near that size. Well, um, right now. that's true, although, you know, there are, as you mentioned, there, there, there certainly are differences. Um, the Bitcoin euphoria, though, is not focused on companies and IPOs. It's focused on coins and ICOs. So, you know, it's it, that's it, a fair it, point. It's not a it, it, it's not a complete analogy. I would say it's still not as big, but yeah, yeah, no, that's interesting. I, also, and I also don't. I, I agree with you, Corey, that I don't feel like I feel like retail investors were kind of getting all in in the dot com era. Everybody wanted to kind of be a piece of the internet internet craze. Bitcoin, I feel like it's more selective, although. You're seeing more and more interest among retail in investors. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's. I, I mean, I think that um, it, it, it's a little bit different, and that goes to some some of the differences right. that I want that, so that I wanted to get look, get to. Okay, um, let's go to the differences. So, so um, the differences in general are related to, in my in my view, the dramatically weakened. Uh, financial position of the United States, which are attributable to a number of factors. One of those factors is aging demographics. I mean, mm -hmm. today you've got 10,000 baby boomers that are retiring and collecting Social Security and Medicare every day. And so their inclination to bet on risky assets uh, is, is going to be lower, having nothing to do with the stock market and everything to do with, with, with their age and stage of life. But it's also having an impact on, on, on the fiscal position of the United States. Uh, other differences are absolute debt levels. And I'm not just talking about government debt, but also consumer debt They're and up. corporate debt. 348 percent compared to GDP today versus 241 percent back in, in 1999. You've got interest rates that are lower. Um, so that allows us to, to handle that amount of debt for now. Um, and then finally, the big difference is that inequality is great, uh, much greater today. Uh, wealth and income inequality, which is creating all kinds of social strife 
and, and in addition to populist politics. Adam, we've got about 40 seconds left here. So sum it up. So what does it mean then for where the markets, the economy, where things go from here? Just quickly. Well, I, I, you know, I'm not going to make a short-term call, but what I would say is I think it makes sense to you know, I, I do think that now is not the time to be going after the riskiest assets. Uh, just like uh, 2000 was not the time to, to be going after the risky as, riskiest assets. I think it pays to take some risk off the table. Um, I also think it's it's a good idea to make uh, investments in areas that could benefit from a weakened dollar. So and so those are some of the areas that we're investing in right now. Okay. When air, when, so that would be, for example, just real quick. For example, like we really like South Korea. We own several stocks in South Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, we own a bunch of industrials and commodity-related companies that um, were hurt in 2015 when the dollar rose. Interesting things to think about. Adam, thank you. Thank Adam, you. Adam Strauss, co-CEO, portfolio manager, Appleseed Capital, based in Chicago, in our New York studio. Tesla reporting results last night Last night after the close, and uh, the stock's down 6% afterwards. Uh, what does this all mean? What does it mean about the future of the company that's having trouble producing cars? Dana Hull joins us right now, Bloomberg News technology reporter, who covers Tesla for us, as well as Joel uh, Livington, Bloomberg Industrias, I'm just sorry, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Credit Analyst. Uh, and Dana, let me start with you. The numbers from Tesla, we, you know, we knew the production numbers were going to be weak, but they produced virtually no more cars than they did a year ago, even though we were supposed to be deep into uh, uh, Model 3 production at this point. Yeah, I mean, we knew that we knew that it was going to be weak. I think the report was seen, you know, by by bulls as okay. It's not quite so bad. They managed to conserve some cash. They still have a lot of customer deposits. But the stock is really taking a hit today. Obviously, the larger market is playing a role in that. But Model Three reservation holders also got emails last night pushing their delivery dates back. And people who have been waiting for two years are now going to have to wait even longer. And you're starting to see some sentiment on Twitter and elsewhere that people's patience is wearing thin, particularly people who wanted the bare-bones $35,000 car, and uh, we're hoping to get the federal tax credit with that. I guess the key thing is, though, here, Dana, is will he ultimately deliver? I mean, we've seen these delays with his um, production uh, deadlines, if you will, but will he ultimately deliver just a little bit later than well, everyone he expected? Cer- I mean, he certainly thinks so. I mean, this is a guy who's sort of fresh off of his miraculous you know, Falcon Heavy launch, and then he waltzes into the earnings call, and he says at the top of the call, listen, you know, we sent a roadster to the asteroid belt. We, we are, we're going to figure out these production problems. And his attitude, I mean, some may say it's a bit cavalier, but he, I mean, he sort of seems to say, yeah, we're going to figure it all out. And he's surprisingly candid on these calls about what the problems are. First, it's the battery module, you know, so it, you know, now they've got some piece of equipment that's got to come over from Germany. So, I mean, I think his attitude is always very much long view, be patient, we'll get there. It's an awesome car, you're not going to regret it. And, you know, the proof is really in, you know, if customers right. are frustrated, they can cancel their deposits. So far, the vast majority of them have not. And some or, or there's churn. They're, get, they're getting cancellations and they're getting new deposits. We don't know the answer to that. They, they we don't, don't know the answer to that. Right. And they don't and tell course, us that. And of, and of course, but and of course that and of course they you know unveiled these new products, the semi truck and the roadster. So, I mean, their deposit number did rise you know, from the end of the third quarter to the end of the fourth quarter, but we just don't know what the mix of those deposits are. And some might say, if you can get a rocket and send a car into space, how come you can't get uh, the production models, <laughs> the production well, schedule I, right? Uh, someone tweeted that to me and said, yeah. you know, why? how can they put a rocket in space and they can't get the production on it? Because it's easier to throw something in space than it is to get the production. It's really hard what they're trying to do and they're showing they can't do it. Well, let's let's bring in Joel Levington, our senior credit analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Joel, what's changing about the Tesla credit picture at this point? 
Well, uh, I think the things if anything, that have, I think the things that have changed since they debuted with their benchmark bond in August is that uh, you're six months later without uh, any additional production that's going on. Uh, but more importantly, you have a rising rate environment. And for a company like Tesla, which needs to have access to capital frequently, that becomes a problem. And so their their bonds have been getting hit pretty hard. Uh, since they've been issued, they're down about uh, six or six and a half points, uh, depending on what the spot is today. Uh, so it, essentially, it's lagged the index by about 440 basis points since they've been issued in August. Uh, just to put that in reference, the the index, the Bloomberg Barclays High Yield Index for the past year, has generated about a 5.2 percent return. Well, let's. So maybe you could help with this because. Uh, Tesla didn't help with this, <laughs> um, and, I, and I put this up on my Twitter account at Corey TV. Um, in the cash flow statement, they they had positive cash flow from operations, which was a wonderful thing. It's the first time they've done that in a very very long time, if ever. I have to go back and look, but um, this has consistently been a draw a drag. Uh, their their changes in operating assets, they they lump them all together. They don't detail it. They give a consolidated cash flow statement. They don't give the full cash flow statement. They put they save that for the 10Q, not when they announce earnings, and I don't know who's paying attention to the 10Q. But I went and looked at this cash flow statement, I see a positive half million dollars, the entirety almost, of their, of their cash flow from operations was from changes in operating assets and liabilities. That's right. And so, I don't know, was it customer deposits? Was it, it's just this amazing thing that makes their free cash flow look possible. They wouldn't have free cash flow otherwise. Right, and I think people reacted to that where originally you see a headline number that the cash flow doesn't look as bad as people were expecting. But when you read uh, the details in the, in the footnotes, what you see is that most of it is timing on working capital, so things like right. inventory and receivables, uh, as well as they curtailed about $250 million worth of capital expenditures, which improves free cash flow. Uh, so these are timing issues and not something that you could say uh, consistently means that you're a, a stronger or better right. company. They didn't pay their suppliers as fast as they took money, which is what they said. That's not a sign of, a, of an improving business. Right. And then more importantly, I guess when you look to 2018, I guess our model has it as about $2.5 billion uh, worth of negative free cash flow this year, which to me means that they have to get back to the, to the capital markets. So if they've got to borrow money or sell more stock, uh, rates are going up. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is there a point at which that, that's going to run into a brick road? Are people going to keep loaning these guys money? Well, I think that's really the one of the cruxes of the reasons why we were so uh, negative about the bonds when they first came out is that uh, what you can do at this point is you can issue debt. Uh, that 5.3% coupon that they have is now more like 6.3%. So that becomes harder to pay back. And it also means that your cash flow is going to get weighed down by a higher rate. Or alternatively, you can issue equity, which uh, you know is not something that a shareholder might necessarily want to see. Right. Or alternatively, you might start thinking about secured debt. And if you did go for secured debt, that means that the bonds that are issued would be primed. They would be pushed ahead. They would be pushed back in the capital structure. Dana, just very quickly, 20 seconds. Anything other, you know, in terms of Tesla's businesses that we need to be aware of as investors? Well, you know, they're always talking about the products that are coming down the line versus the products that everyone wants right now. So customers are anxious for their Model 3, but, mm. you know, Musk is talking about the Model Y. And, you know, I mean, it's always like, it's always the shiny object that's around the corner. All right, good stuff. Dana, thank you. Dana Hall, technology reporter, knows all things Tesla for us here at Bloomberg News on the phone in San Francisco. Joe Levington knows all things when it comes to credit. He is our senior credit analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. I'm driving in my car 
I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. Is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, it's time for the drive to the close. We are just uh, minutes away from that closing bell. Right now, the uh, S&P 500 down 80 points, a decline of 3%. You've got the Dow Jones Industrial Average off about 830 points, down 3.3%. NASDAQ off 218 points. That is a 3.1% decline. Let's bring in Randy Watts back with us, Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist at William O'Neill & Company, who walked in and said, i got to keep a watch on this, and has his phone firmly planted in front of him. You're watching this market decline. Feels like it makes sense. Is it controlled in terms of the selling? Um, what does it say to you? Uh, it says a couple of things. The first is this has been a very long uh, bull market run as we entered this year without a 5% correction. So obviously we're kind of getting that now. So long overdue. Lo- uh, long over, Longer than historically is, is normal. Uh, there's a little bit of a tug of war going on right now with investors. On the one hand is uh, higher inflation, higher wages, and the fact that the Fed is both raising rates and reducing their balance sheet. On the other hand of the ledger, it's really a very strong corporate profit cycle, uh, strong economic growth. And right now, uh, stocks are kind of dealing with that uh, dichotomy between the two. Uh, it's ugly out there. It, it is. We really want to see the market hold on the S&P. It's Tuesday. Uh, intraday low, which was 2593. We're at 2597. Leave it to, leave right it to the William O'Neill guys to come <laughs> with a technical analysis. Uh, if it doesn't hold that low, we would say the market is still in a, in a downtrend and then would be looking for the market to try to hold that bottom for three days before then, you know, hopefully having an up move. The, but, again, the intraday low. And what was that number? Uh, 2593. Yeah, and we're 25.99 right now. So again, that's a that's a that's an important important low, even though it was intraday, not at the not at the close. Are things coming undone? Right. Is it is it is it the sign that the economy is coming undone or not? You just talked about corporate profits actually doing well. Right, and it's been a very good earnings season. I would sort of mention to your listeners about about over 60 percent of the S and P has reported since January 1st. The numbers have been very strong. The average company's beating by about four percent, and earnings revisions have been up about about 7 to almost 8% for companies that have reported. So we are in a strong corporate profit cycle. I think what investors are wrestling with right now is if you have a little bit higher inflation and you have a little bit higher 10-year bond yield, which today is about 285, I think, mm-hmm. you know, what multiple should they be paying for these corporate earnings? So it's just a valuation call at this point. At, at this point, I would say yes, because, again, earnings have been good, yeah. revisions are positive, uh, and, and the world economy has been improving. I'm going to break out the egg timer with some consistent updates here in the Dow as we get closer to the close. Our listeners are wondering, mm-hmm. uh, 878 points down in the Dow. That's 3.5%, 3% down, 3.2% in the S&P. This is a serious, serious sell-off here. It, it, it is, and we would say, you know, the fact that the S&P broke the 21-day moving average on Friday and then broke the 50-day moving average on Tuesday and then obviously had that 
that uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Broke the broke, broke the 21 day on Friday. Broke the broke the the, uh, the the 50 day on Monday, and then had that big intraday low on Tuesday. Those are all significant points. We're 25.95 in the S&P right now, just one two points above your your limit there. Randy, you guys sent some research over, and you said the U.S. market has been downgraded to a downtrend. So, do you anticipate that we have a downtrend that goes on for some time? Does it? go to a 10% correction. I don't know where we are right now. I have to check my numbers. Um, and then we just kind of level off? Sure. So I guess two points on that. When Historically, when you have a correction inside of an ongoing bull market, mm -hmm. those corrections are usually at least 8% which we've already kind of uh, reached it, you know, at this point. 13% lower on the S&P since that January 26 high. And second, they usually last a minimum of 22 trading days. So I think one thing I would tell investors is these things usually do not resolve themselves over a matter of days. They usually really resolve themselves more over a matter of weeks. So we really want to take our, our signals from the market and see that it's technically and quantitatively started to move upwards again before we want to rush in and, and, and really catch the proverbial falling knife. And as I look at this price here, it's a it's a nine point nine per nine point seven percent decline off of the high um, from late January. So, is is that hanging in there just above a ten percent uh, uh, correction here? The uh, uh, important level as well. Yeah, I would say the other important level to watch is the two hundred day moving average on the S and P, which is at twenty five thirty eight, which is down you know another uh, sort of two percent from where we are today. So I would say that would be the next important point. So, so, sorry, so which, which moving averages do you keep an eye on then? Uh, we really keep an eye on, on, on the 21, the 50, and the 200. As we said earlier, we've already punctured the 21 and the 50. Right. Uh, we, we talked about that Tuesday low. And then the next thing is the 200-day moving average for the S&P, which is currently around 25.38, which would be about another 2% decline from here. All right. And forgive me, it was, we're down 9.5%, as Corey said, um, from that 26, January 26, 2018 high. Um, okay. So it's not like things are coming undone. Again, I just go back to it's just getting things back to more a more reasonable level. I think another thing for people to remember is that in a typical year, stocks have a peak to trough move of about 10%. I think the fact that volatility has been so low for investors the last several years has maybe created a false sense of complacency in the market. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, this volatility is actually moving back towards more normal historic volatility for U.S. stocks. This is what I find staggering is because what we've been wanting is the Fed to get back to a more normal policy that the economy is sustainable enough that we don't need all those unprecedented uh, moves by the Fed. We've got about 20 seconds. Yes, and I think as there is a normalization process and we come off that kind of, uh, you know, sugar high of abnormally low rates and the Fed increasing its balance sheet, there's some adjustment period, and clearly that's what we're going through now. All right. Randy Watts, Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist at William O'Neill & Company. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
All right, everybody, it is time for your movers and shakers on this Thursday afternoon. I got to repeat, though, uh, those major equity averages. I know Charlie did it, but uh, a big day, big down day uh, for the equity markets. Again, the Dow Jones Industrial Average down 1,033 points. That is a decline of uh, 4.2%. We've got the S&P 500 closing 10% below its January 26 record. The S&P now down 10.2% uh, since that uh, moment, closing down another 100 points today for a 3.8% decline. NASDAQ down 274 points. Uh, Corey, that is a 3.9% decline. But the Dow now down about 10.3%, almost 10.4% from uh, that January 26 high. So a significant move and officially a market correction. Uh, absolutely, and we mentioned that uh, crucial uh, uh, 2593 levels for those technical analysts out there looking at their tea leaves uh, that the William O'Neill uh, guest was just talking about. And Indeed, the S&P broke right through that pretty much right when we ended that segment. So that's, uh, if those guys are right, and I don't know if they're right or not, but if those guys are right, that's a, that's a, a sign of maybe more selling yet to happen. Um, a big change. The biggest loser in the S&P today, uh, Haynes Brands, mm-hmm. uh, stock was down 11% on the day. Um, real rough day uh, at, at Haynes Brands. Um, uh, the company um, uh, announcing uh, um, an acquisition uh, and uh, of bra and things. Um, and uh, but uh, some profit concerns with the company uh, after announcing uh, earnings, and uh, earnings were seen as disappointing, and it really, uh, uh, really hurt the stock today. Yeah, and I do wonder when you know investors are going to get back to kind of the earnings results. Right, we're at the kind of the end of the earnings cycle, uh, but that's when we've heard from companies, and most of our guests will say, "Hey, the earnings picture has been really strong and really good." Um, but maybe you know, and we know in terms of valuations within the market, they've gotten way ahead of themselves. And just like our last guest, Randy Watts at uh, William O'Neill, was talking that you know we need to kind of see things get back to more normal. He also said, kind of on his way out, we were talking more about the market, Corey. Just the level of volatility. There's been so. So much complacency. We've talked about it over and over and over again for the last year, couple of years, in fact. And then he says, "What we're seeing now is much more normal in terms of the volatility levels." Uh, so, well, let's let's talk about the VIX real quick. The VIX. So again, we've been talking about the VIX for years, trading mm-hmm. at or about ten. Um, and when it would get to twelve or get to fifteen, it was it was it was guaranteed money to sell it at fifteen. The VIX has now closed at closed at thirty four point five, thirty point four eight for the day. It's 24% higher than it was yesterday. But the last four closes in the VIX, 37, mm-hmm. 30, 28, and 35. Uh, that is extraordinary volatility compared to what we've seen for the last you know, five years. All right. A headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal, uh, Qualcomm, their board rejecting a revised Broadcom proposal. Broadcom's already made two bids for this company, and Qualcomm coming out and saying, no thanks, thanks, but no thanks, and rejecting that latest uh, proposal from Broadcom. So that'll be uh, something that we're going to be Big keeping deal. a Big watch. deal in the chip business. Yes. And, uh, and the market was trading the stock like that was going to get rejected because the stock was nowhere near what that bid was. What is Qualcomm doing in the after hours? Let me just take a quick look and see. Uh, stock's up about 2.4%, so we'll see. Uh, we're waiting for some media earnings. Uh, News Corp expected to res- uh, report results. Viacom did come out with uh, their numbers earlier today. It is the number two gainer. Yep, there were some stocks, folks, that actually did gain in today's session. 16 names uh, in the S&P 500 that actually showed uh, some moves to the upside. Viacom among them up 7.2%, yeah. up $2.20 to $32.71 a share. Uh, Viacom uh, shares surging as the owner of things like MTV and some other things. Um, 
predicted U.S. advertising sales would return to growth later on this year. And, of course, the other story is whether or not we're going to see Viacom get back together with CBS, right? There's been a lot of talk about that in the marketplace, Corey. Uh, Let me mention uh, FireEye, a security company. Interesting. The stock is up. Results they came out with were fine, not great, uh, uh, but uh, the stock's up 10% in after-hours trading. Why? Because the CEO says the CEO says we're working hard. CEO says our heads are down executing, but there's been a lot of people interested in us from an M and A perspective, and uh, that chatter has the stock up 10 percent in after hours trading. Yeah, what's interesting too, another after hours headline. You've got UPS coming out, and it's boosting its quarterly dividend to 91 cents a share from 83 cents. Uh, folks that we talked to here at Bloomberg had an estimate of 88 cents for the dividend raise, but they're going uh, above that level to 91 cents. Just taking a look at shares of UPS, uh, not doing much uh, here in the after hours trade. And that gives it a current dividend yield of, well, the current dividend yield is 3.4%, 3.04%. So that's a healthy dividend from UPS All right. after a big slide in the stock. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned uh, the VIX. Let me do it one more time for everybody. The volatility index report up 23.6%, up about six and a half points uh, in a day where we saw a lot of selling and the Dow uh, losing again. A thousand, more than a thousand points. It's second time this week that the Dow Jones Industrial Average has lost a thousand points here. Uh, the VIX again up 23%, closing at 34.28. This is Bloomberg Radio. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Dave Wilson joins us right now with his stock of the day. Dave, in a sea of red, what have you selected for your stock of the day? I've got green, Corey, specifically Vista Outdoor. This is a company that makes all kinds of sporting goods, Bell bike helmets, Bushnell binoculars, Camelback water bottles. They also have a shooting sports unit that supplies ammunition. Tomorrow is the third anniversary of Vista Outdoor's spinoff from the company now known as ATK Orbital. The ticker is VSTO. Stock peaked uh, two years ago, and then some earnings disappointments sort of dragged down the company. Well, they came out with their latest set of results today, and suffice it to say, it was a change for the better. Fiscal third quarter earnings and sales beat analyst average estimates in a Bloomberg survey. Vista Outdoor raised its full year forecast for free cash flow, or what's left over after capital spending, and the stock had its biggest gain since its debut, up almost 12%. Which is just a reminder, Dave Wilson, that there are stocks that trade on fundamentals, to even when you're seeing uh, most of the equity market moving lower. Absolutely, and uh, this is a great example. Dave Wilson, our Bloomberg Stocks columnist, with his Stock of the Day. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.